Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to episode 46. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, it's good to be back, buddy. How, how you been doing with me uh, kind of taking a leave of absence here? Well, this is a little bit awkward, Josh, because, you know, I, I didn't expect you back for another six or seven months with the way you kind of <laughs> milk things out. And so I got Mark LaCour uh, from the Oil & Gas Global Network coming on next week to co-host. And, and so it's it's good to have you back, but I, I need I actually need you to take off next week. I'm sure I'm sure you won't push back on, on getting a little vacation time, but it is it's good to it's good to have you back um, for for today, I suppose, and maybe we'll get you back in two weeks or two months or or whenever that is. Well, the surprising thing, Ryan, is uh, that I, I've I've been paying attention to the show and it, it hasn't completely dropped off, you know. So uh, somebody <laughs> at least knows what they're doing on on the other end. And it's good <laughs> to be back, Ryan. It's good to be back. You know, I've I've missed doing the show. There's been lots of lots of stuff coming out over the last week or so, and. Uh, haven't had a chance to get on and research and uh, just enjoy doing this with you. Well, it's good to have you back, and I know we've talked offline, obviously, a lot, but um, but we want to congratulate you on the birth of the baby boy. And did you name? I, I haven't actually seen because I don't do a lot of Facebook or stuff. I haven't actually seen the name on a birth certificate. But in honor of me, did you name it Ryan or Little <laughs> Ryan or Ryan for middle name, maybe? I pushed for it, but the wife just wouldn't have it. She just wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't go for it. We, uh, smart, we went with Silas Hughes. Silas Hughes Shelton. He is a good-looking little fella. And we did put a picture of him up on uh, the Text One Guest Podcast Instagram. So if you're curious, um, he is there. Well, Ryan, while I was away, I noticed that we had a new review, a rating and review in iTunes. It was a five-star review, some a uh, little written review. We really appreciate that. Uh, big shout-out uh, to going in and doing that for us. Anyone else, uh, if you have time, really helps us out. So please uh, go give us a rating and review in iTunes. Uh, yeah, cu- Cubicle Golfer, Josh, gave us a five-star review, which is very nice. And uh going to talk about enjoying the show. But but we did. We did. To have a one star come through, and uh, you know, not you know, it was kind of kind of shocking. I've done you know almost two hundred podcasts, and I've never had a one star review on any of my shows, and I got one on this show and another show. I think it's, I think it's someone I've made mad in life. So whoever it is, I am truly sorry that you decided to give us a one star review. I know you're frustrated that Josh Shelton doesn't show up for work all the time, but I can't help it. I can't help it. So, <laughs> but we did get the five star, which which made up for it. But if you could. There are people out there who genuinely just do stuff like that, who give you one star reviews because they're mad or upset or, you know, just crazy. And so, um, you know, if, if you could, in all seriousness, uh, a five star rating interview, it really helps the show out more than you know because how iTunes works and how they pump promote the show for us, how we get in front of new listeners. Um, it's not just going and hitting that five star button. And the reason the person who hit the one star button is because they don't want you to know who they are. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we appreciate the five stars. But we, we like also a little commentary, you know, why you like the show, because it's really hard for us to understand what the listeners want to hear. And so when you get something like cubicle golf or going in there, putting a little information, this is what they like, um, some of our previous reviews, what they like, it's very helpful. And hey, look, you know, there's going to be haters out there. So if you could take the 
just the two minutes, go click that five star button, leave us a little bit of written commentary in there. It goes a long way and um, you know makes us feel good. And, and maybe Josh will work a little bit more if we get more five star reviews. No, <laughs> no promises, no promises. But before we go any further, Josh, we got to thank our sponsor, um, who actually has re-upped with us, and we're excited to announce that. R&D Pipe Company will be sponsoring again for the month of February. And so, you know, I think the best way to kind of promote these people is, first off, it's a, it's, if it's a family-owned business, I've been to their office, I like the people there. But secondly, go listen to Ron. We interviewed him for First Friday Q&A. Actually, he answered some questions for us uh, this time last month. And so go back a few episodes and check out his interview where I sit down and I say interview, I really kind of ask him some questions. And that's episode 42. I was there at R&D Pipe's office and, um, you know, had a great time speaking with them and and, and, and a lot of good insight there from R&D Pipe Company. Be sure to check them out and tell them we sent you if you're into the OCTG business. I think they might be at NAPE this week as well, so be on the lookout for them. A couple other things, Josh, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show is be sure if you can't find the show in certain platforms, here's where you can find it at. You can find it in Spreaker. That's where host the show. You can download the Spreaker app. You get notifications. You can follow us on there. It's right there, and you can follow some other shows that I do as well. Google Play, if you like Google Play, we're also in Stitcher. We're also in iTunes. As we mentioned, iTunes is kind of the big boy, so go ahead and written review there. Um, iHeartRadio, if you like the iHeartRadio, we're in the iHeartRadio. I, I, we're on the Alexa, so if you want to wake up to Josh Shelton's smooth voice as you cook your bacon and play it over the Alexa, we are there. You have to download the Spreaker app on your Alexa, and then you can play it from there. Um, and so we're all over the place. We're very excited. I will be at NAVE this week. So this show will come out on Monday, uh, sometime Monday, Monday evening, Monday afternoon, Monday night. It just depends on when I get to edit it. And um, I'll be at NAPE, Ryan at GlobalEnergyMedia.com if you're going to be there. Or you can find me on the Instagram page, which reminds me, Josh, we have Texas Oil and Gas Live. I say we, it's me. Josh doesn't show up for that one, unfortunately. But Texas Oil and Gas Live, me, it's Monday through Saturday. It's a six-day-a-week show um, I do. It's between you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. This show is built for the listeners. We love to have folks come on and to talk. Um, so if you listen to the show and you want to talk, you want to ask a question, you want to give your input, Texas Oil and Gas Live on the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast Instagram page is the spot. So go to Instagram at Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. That is the place to be. Um, you are welcome on that live stream any day that we do it. So literally any day that we do it, if you want to put a comment, you want a question, you want us to clarify something, um, you can hop on there. All you got to do is hop on the live stream when we go live and request to come on and we will get you on um, you know, as soon as we can. So a lot of stuff's going on. I know that um, for our Texas One Gas Instagram followers, Josh, they've noticed that we've been selling our, our Arctic Cups. And so I have sold a bunch of Arctic Cups. Excited about that. We have some more um, that will be coming in. And here's how we've done this, Josh. We've said the first batch, the first batch we order, we're going to do it basically at cost plus shipping. Um, so, you know, for our loyal supporters who kind of said, yeah, I'll buy a cup. The second batch will be a slight markup on because I'm going to try to get some in stock so I can just ship them out. Um, right now, I'm ordering them on demand. And so if you want to text one guy's Arctic Cup. They are lovely. They're great. They're a really good looking cup, I think. Um, you could find that again on Texas Oil and Gas podcast on Instagram. And the final plug, Josh, I know it's a lot of stuff. But the final plug for the Instagram page is I'm giving away a pair of Shady Rays. Um, they are sunglasses. I've got two pairs. Shady Rays sponsors the live stream. And so they've given us, we've worked out a deal. We got two pairs, one this week and the uh, one next week. So if you, by the time you hear this recording, the, the, the first giveaway, which we'll announce at the end of this show, will have happened. But the second one, will be next Friday. So you need to get on the Instagram page, go to the profile, click the link, and sign up to win um, a pair of Shady Rays. 
Awesome. Awesome. Brian. You got a lot of stuff going on. And one of on, us man. has got to work, Josh. One of us has got to work. That's right. That's right. You're picking up the slack. Well, look, uh, Ryan, we have a couple of uh, things that are coming out this week. One, uh, the Trump, uh, the, during uh, one of his speeches this week, he mentioned that ExxonMobil was going to be investing $50 billion in the U.S. economy. And I think doing some further research that most of that is going to be in the Permian. Is, is, is that right, Ryan? Yeah, they're really excited about what's going on in the Permian. And we talked about this. I'm looking back at my notes here, Josh, on the live stream um, yesterday, maybe, or two days ago. I'm not sure, but we talked about this week. And a couple of notes that I have jotted down here from ExxonMobil. First off, they're expecting their rig count for the Permian to be up 65% over the next couple of years. So wherever it's at now, 65% increase over the next couple of years. On top of that, they've doubled, um, let's see here, they've doubled their footage on their laterals um per day and so they're getting longer laterals uh and quicker laterals and then finally is they've reduced their overhead their cost on their on their drilling 70 percent since 2014 i've got the i've got this the cliff notes here so if i get one of these stats wrong give me a little grace here but you can find an article that references this but something like that so rig counts can be up like 65 percent in the next few years they've reduced their uh, cost to drill a well by 70 percent since 2014, and they've um, increased their footage on the laterals. And so, yeah, they got a lot of exciting stuff coming on. And XTO, now when you're Exxon, you think of drilling, you got to think XTO because XTO does, a, um, I don't know if it's all of their drilling, but I know it's most of their drilling. And so XTO um, will be doing all of that drilling in the Permian. So XTO, when you hear Exxon, uh, if you're looking for the drilling side of things. Awesome. Well, Ryan, we had a, an interesting article that I saw that came out with oilprice.com, and it mentions the efficiency that has been increasing in the market. Like you mentioned, we can drill uh, the same amount of oil for less money. And they're talking, uh, what, they're, what they're showing is that the oil production is going to increase this year, probably break the record that was set back in 1972. But they're saying that it's probably going to happen with about 75,000 less oil workers than we had in tw- at the end of 2014. And that's due to higher levels of efficiency. This has been something that has been going on. We've been, you know, talking about it for I'd, I'd say the last six months, Ryan, about uh, efficiency increasing in technology, big data being used, uh, and and that we can see it kind of playing out. So the the production for the Permian looks great. They're saying they're going to be able to probably. I think they're estimating 1.4 billion barrels this year uh the record set in 1972 was 1.2 billion barrels so they're expecting to break that record this year you know it's, it's just a projection uh but the, the outlook looks great uh for the permian this year yeah and i want to talk about that statistic josh about the about the workers and i don't like these statistics because they're 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 misleading and here and here's why if you go back and you said um okay um, a horse can carry two people. Okay. Well, it, it, and then you said, well, the horse and buggy can carry, I don't know. I never rode a horse and buggy, but let's just say it can carry four people. Um, and then the car, the automobile can carry, you know, four, six people. Then the plane can carry, you know, a hundred, 200, 300 people. And, and you go up and you say, well, you know, it takes only two people to fly that plane or it takes, you know, you know, what the person can drive the car. And you say, you can, you, you can look at that and say, well, 
you know, there, there's there's less people involved. Well, yeah, on, on some level, there's less people involved, but that's not all. That's not true because there's more people involved in new disciplines that are indirectly related to what you're talking about. So if you go back to the very first one, the horse, right? You got you got some guy who raises horses, right? And you go get the horse from that guy. When you get the horse and the buggy, um, well, you got the horse guy and you got the buggy guy. And I don't know if, if one person made a buggy or, if, you know, it was 10 people, but let's just say it was two people. So it's three people involved. You got the horse guy and the two buggy makers. Well, then when you go to the car, well, you got a whole factory of people that are involved in that process. But for you, you just go to the dealership and there's a guy that sells you the car. Well, you go to the plane. The plane is composed of thousands and thousands of parts that come from factories and, and components that are all over. So if you kind of, if you just kind of work it out, that scale, as things get more streamlined and more efficient, um, there's actually more people involved in the process. They're just not directly involved in the process because there are. You know, so first off, people in the oil and gas industry right now are are tied to the airplane business. First off, you've got fuel costs, right? You've got um, all the plastics, the petrochemical stuff. You get the parts, and you got to transport the, the, these parts on cars and trucks. So, you know, all of these people are indirectly related to the air, airline business, but no one looks at it and says, "Well, the airline business has this many workers from oil and gas." We don't think about it like that. So, yes, directly in the oil business, the number of people are going to go down because they're drilling longer laterals. Um, and but but there are other jobs, there are other things that are being created that aren't aren't kind of get reported here. So I kind of, I don't, I like when we say this because it does point to something else that companies are able to do stuff um, less efficiently. I mean, more efficiently, but it also kind of is misleading because people hear that go, well, there's less jobs. Well, actually there's probably more jobs. They're just different jobs. And so we got to kind of always want to balance that out. Cause that, that really gets lost when you talk about this job creation thing is that if something's more complex, it takes more parts, more parts means actually more labor, Josh. It doesn't mean less labor. It means more labor. So if you have a, if you have a horse, it takes one cat to raise a horse. If you want to build a plane and that transports, you know, um, 300 times more people, what well, takes thousands of workers to get that done? Yep. Yeah. And uh, that's one thing that gets kind of lost in the shuffle is that the efficiency is, is coming from somewhere. There are companies that are doing big data. Those companies have dozens of workers and technology and that, that are getting jobs. So there's jobs being opened up, like you say, in so many different fields and so many different ways that they're, they're measuring, I guess, like a, a, a univariable approach to measuring the amount of workers that are involved in the oil and gas industry rather than looking at it kind of a, at a multi-varied level. Well, which I well, I'm sorry to cut you off, Josh. Yeah, I mean, and you're right. It, it, I talked to someone one time and they said that solar has more jobs than anyone else. And I kind of chuckled and he goes, no, I'm serious. And then I got to think about it. I said, you know, if you count every bolt person who sells a bolt, a nut, and a screw in America, and you know, <laughs> and that, that, that is related to putting on a solar panel, if you count that as a job, Okay, I can kind of see where you might get to that conclusion, but but that's also it. It sounds silly, but it's actually also true because if you make a bolt to uh, bolt the solar panel down to your house or bolt it to the bracket, well, that that is actually you, you can't have the solar panel without that bolt. So it's it's it, it, I under so mm-hmm. this is that government reporting stuff, um, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a minute. But I do want to mention one thing, Josh. We didn't get to the question today. It's probably going to be next month. We did have a listener from Australia um, who mentioned. Um, we sent in a question. We don't. I said we get to it, but Josh has has didn't put it on the roster today. But I did want to give a shout out because he said he is um, in Australia. He's in the oil and gas business. He's interested, and so uh, Jesse. I, I guess it's Cotriel. It's C O T T 
E-R-I-L-L. He mentioned, hey, if you got any listeners in Australia, we actually have a lot of listeners from Australia. It's really surprising um, because you go, wow, Texas One Guys podcast, you would think a lot of people from Australia. But a lot of my shows, Josh, I do have a lot of listeners from Australia. So um, I, I would pull the Dumb and Dumber and put a lot of shrimp on the Barbie, but I'd probably sound probably sound terrible at it. But anyways, he, he mentioned in his email <laughs> that he is on LinkedIn. And so if you're in Australia and you want to connect with Jesse, um, be sure to check him out on LinkedIn. And we'll get to your question hopefully next month, Jesse. Yeah. And Ryan, right before we jump into the three questions that we're going to go into, I do have a couple of pieces of mergers and acquisitions, kind of our job call. Uh, Parsley Energy, it's a Austin-based company, sold, um, uh, they closed on a sale for about 10,000 net acres. Uh, they closed on it for $57 million. So they're making uh, some moves. That, what, what, I'm, what I'm seeing, this is not going to be a huge producing piece of property here uh but it is it is some you know the company they're trying to grow and expand this year so uh, parsley energy is someone to keep an eye on and ryan lastly we have carrizo they uh let's see carrizo oil and gas incorporated announced it closed on the previously announced sale of its assets in the dj basin which was on january the 19th it received approximately 123 million at closing, so uh, they're making some moves, getting rid of some property, divesting some of their investments, and and looking to kind of move some of their investments elsewhere. Yep, yep, yep. good stuff, Ryan. The Ryan, the questions that we have today, let me pull them up. Uh, the first one we have is from Steve Kemper. He has a question about abiotic oil. Uh, Ryan, we were planning to get to this one last month, but we were at R&D Pipeline doing our remote at the time. So we're going to start things off with this question about abiotic oil. Uh, Ryan, I've been doing some research on this for a couple of weeks now, just when, I have, when I've had time. And it seems to be a pretty controversial subject. You know, I would expect that it'd be uh, kind of, you know, I guess, more laid back, just kind of looking at the evidence. But there seems to be uh, even a, a political um a political tie to some of this question there's kind of this um it's, it's a it's a much bigger question than than what i at first realized when i started doing some research yeah and to me so steve first off um these comments I'm about to make are not directed at you they're directed at what josh is getting at it's it's a very it's it's a very silly um, petty thing that you see when you talk about abiotic oil because and, and here's and here's one this is something that um, for the listeners, um, this is important to understand about when I look at stuff like this, you know, how I view it and how I think about it. So let's just talk about the scientific method, Josh. Let's just kind of set the table there. The scientific method, um, you know, you, you got, got a question, you know, so how do we get oil how, or, or oil and gas? You know, where does it come from? And then you get a hypothesis, right? Okay. So let's, let's ask that question. How, how do we get oil? And then the hypothesis is, is it some kind of organic material? Okay. Um, you know, plant life. Um, you know, I know there's people you say dinosaurs, not dinosaurs, but organic plant life. Um, and then now let's run an experiment. So Josh, how do we run an experiment to tell us that billions of <laughs> pounds of um, organic plant life seeped through the earth's core uh, surface into these pockets of oil? How do we, how do we do, how do we run the experiment? Uh, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough because it's pretty tough, it's pretty tough to yeah. do that. It's almost, actually it's impossible to do that because I think because we can't. 
I was gonna say we, we we can't cover the Earth's surface over you know millions or billions or whatever you want to say years and then um, run that experiment, right? Am I, have I missed anything so far? No, I, I think uh, I think you're on there. Okay, so you can't do the experiment, okay? And so the abiotic oil theory says, well, we don't think it comes from that. We think that the Earth is um, has a process in which it just naturally creates this substance that we're calling a fossil fuel. Um, or, I mean, so so you got that debate. And so on that side of the debate, I say, okay, well, how do we run the scientific method there? Well, we, we, we probably can't on, on any real level. Um, and the way to test this theory on the abiotic oil, pro-abiotic oil side would be is to measure the level of oil in reserves if it increases after it had been produced from, from a, period, a period of time. Now, if you had enough studies that said, hey um, – <clears throat> It is, it is increasing. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Earth is producing it because it could just be some other cause that we're not aware of. So for me, you're right. When You, you set the tone perfectly. This is a debate that it's, it's really weird and it's very, it's very uh, I won't say crazy, that how controversial this is. And, I, and this is the problem I have with a lot of modern science, Josh, is we go over the top on, on stuff we can't prove. We can't prove we can't do the scientific method and so let me, let me point you to an article on this here's an article um from 2005 so there's probably something different that says something a little bit different but but bear with me here uh, this is um in the leading theory dead organic material accumulates at the bottom of the oceans riverbeds or swamps mixing with mud and sand and over time more sediment piles on top and the resulting heat and pressure transforms the organic layer into dark waxy substance um, and goes on about that. So that, so kind of what I laid out there. Um, and, and it says, how long does the process take? Well, scientists aren't really sure, but they, fig- but they figure it's probably on the order of hundreds of thousands of years. Okay, well, so, so okay, if you want to think that's your hypothesis, then sure, that's fine. I don't, I'm not mad at you for having that hypothesis. Um, but you can't, you can't come and say that this is the way it is. And that's the problem with the abiotic debate is that people on the, hey, it's taken this long and this is how it happened – they look down on this theory, and, and they say it's impossible. Now, I don't really have a dog in the hunt here. That's my that's my first answer, and my and mainly because Josh, I, I don't see a way to test either of these theories right now. Um, the abiotic oil actually has a chance to be tested um, on some level because you could see res- reservoirs replenish over time. And if you saw that, you could then ask the question. What makes these reservoirs replenish? Um, but to test, you know, what's going on with the Earth and stuff, it's going to be a little bit more advanced study than where we're at today. Um, now, the core of all this, and this is really important for, in my opinion, the core of all of this is because people for years have been saying that we're going to run out of oil. That oil, the end of oil is coming. The end of oil is coming. Well, if you believe that the end of oil is coming, you have to believe that oil is running out. Okay, so so you know if you think that we're going to run out, you know, if, if you're saying that the that the the rain of oil is going to going to happen, well, that's because you believe we're going to run out of oil. Well, to believe that, you have to believe that oil is a finite substance. Now, I do believe it's probably a finite substance in the sense of I, I'm not, and that's again, I'm not necessarily sold on the abiotic oil. I don't really have an opinion, but I, I do think it's probably closer to a finite substance. Um, but I also think this, Josh, how much oil do we have today? Well, we answer that question by saying, well, we know that we have um, this amount of reserves. Well, when you go look at those reserve numbers, even there's a lot of speculation about how accurate they are. And then you hear every couple of weeks, there's new oil discovered, new oil discovered. There are spots right now where we know there's oil, but we can't access it because the technology's not there. So um, so it's kind of a long-winded way to say, first off, anytime you look at some of this stuff, and it's called subtle science, just about 
always. It's it's it's, it's speculation and um, conjecture that's called subtle science. And if you actually look at the, the science yourself and you try to be pro-science, you actually try to be a scientist, you realize that this stuff is not testable. It's not repeatable. Um, it's just it's just conjecture, and there's a lot of assumptions that are filled in. Um, secondly, on this debate, on the oil debate, there's a huge crowd that believes that we're going to run out of oil. If we were going to run out of oil, there are people in the world right now who would know that. And those people who would know that we're running out of oil, you know, the Aramcos, the OPEX, the ExxonMobils, if they knew that we're going to run out of oil, and they would know because they have the mathematicians there to figure it out, they would be wigging out because they actually understand they actually understand the impact of oil and gas. <clears throat> I've said it before. I'm going to say it again and again and again. If you're listening to the show, unless you're in the middle of the woods or on the lake and you're fishing or hunting and you're you know, away from civilization, look around you. Every single thing that you see that is built, constructed, um, fabricated, you know, molded, it comes from oil and gas on multiple levels, like we talked about a minute ago with the plane analogy. Either at the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, um, oil and gas delivered it to your house at the bare minimum. But it's probably a lot more involved than that. So those people understand that. They understand how deep oil and gas penetrates our lives, how just it, it surrounds us. So if they knew we're going to run oil in 20, 30 years, what do you think would happen? Do you think they would cover it up or do you think they'd be going absolutely crazy? Because they're going to be alive in 20 to 30 years, right? They're not going to be dead. And they're not going to. They're not going to want to walk into a world 20, 30 years without oil. So the smartest people in the world um, on oil and gas, they don't believe we're running out of oil. And if they did, they would be doing something. And I'll give you just a few examples. And I'll let you hop in here, Josh. Go back to the swine flu, the bird flu. Um, insert insert disease here. Uh, what was the one just a few years ago? It killed someone over here in Dallas. I can't remember um, the Ebo- Ebola. Is that what it was? Uh, yes, uh, it may have been. I, swine flu was the one that really stays three in one. Yeah, there's that one that killed the guy from. Uh, he came over from Africa on the plane, and he was in the 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 DFW airport. I don't remember Ebola. Something one of the listeners can email it in, but <clears throat> something. But people Ebola, were waking Ebola, out, yeah, waking out that you know this could be. You know, if you remember, go back and read those headlines. You know, people were in masks and they weren't traveling, so. Think about that just for a second. It's To me, these are all simple logic exercises. Anytime there's a perceived threat, a perceived threat to humanity, and the smart people in the world think that this could be the it, what do they do? They, they, they go crazy, Josh. They actually just go crazy, and rarely do those things happen. Now, you got the bubonic plague, okay? I'll give you that one, but that's, that's a long time ago. Anytime these diseases break out, people go crazy. So if these people who are super smart, who have access to the reservoir, the, uh, num- to the reserves numbers, and they can do the math on how long they'll last, and they can do the math on what other people have, and they can run modeling and, and go, okay, best case, worst case scenario. If those people are sitting back going, we're going to run out of oil in 10, 20 years, they would be wigging out because they know that life as we know it today essentially would end in 10 years. We cannot manufacture the things, these iPads, computers, plastics, all of this stuff, it just goes away. And so until you really immerse yourself in how, how deep oil and gas it affects our lives, you, you, can't, you can't really understand the impact of losing it. Um, but some people think we will lose it, and those people have to have a reason for that. And if you say the oil is a finite resource, then you're going to say that, hey, um, it's going to run out. Okay, well, it's going to run out soon because, wow, that's, you know, it, it's just right around the corner. 
And and we just and, and to me, Josh, it's a very tough debate to make because we keep finding more oil, we keep producing more oil, we keep hitting new records. And so um I, I know that's a really long winded answer and I'll let you I'll let you hop in now. Well, uh, well, Ryan, I, I, doing the research that I did, there was this guy named Thomas Gold at Cornell University. He wrote a book uh, that he published some time ago called The Deep Hot Biosphere, where he was arguing, he, he talked about neutron stars, uh, but they some people took his advice and they went and drilled 4.5 miles down. Um, this is the government of Sweden, and they, they did it in an area where there had been a meteorite hit and caused this large fracture. And that allowed them to go much deeper than the current technology would allow them. But they went 4.5 miles down in an area where abiotic oil said they would find oil and the alternative theory said that they would not find oil. And they found 80 barrels. Now, the guy, uh, there's one guy that was talking about this. He said, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why they could find 80 barrels of oil. But to spend millions of dollars and only find 80 barrels, um, it's not... Uh, it's it's not a it's not a productive way to go about looking for oil. But on the other hand, Ryan, if the abiotic oil says that there was oil there, and the other theory, there's no way that they can account for the oil, uh, at least at the time. Then it at least poses the question of: it, Are there? You know, uh, you ever heard the saying that uh, you, you can't prove that uh, that there's not a white duck, but you could prove that every duck's not white if you just found one that was black. I think the question, if we could pose it, it would be, is there a place that we could go and look for oil that one theory is the only one that, it, that could account for the presence or absence of it? Uh, if we could find something like that, then there's a possibility that we could at least prove that oil doesn't only come from one source or it does only come from one source. And I think that's one thing that people have been trying to do is trying to find areas where there's not this sedimentary buildup. There are areas where there's not any organic life that that would be uh, underneath these these uh, these sediments. Uh, so I, I think they're looking for areas where the ants would be exclusive to either the abiotic or the the other alternative theory, which uh, which you talked about a, mi- uh, a moment ago. And another question, Ryan. I'm about to either look really smart or really stupid here, but um, I, I was talking to my son the other day about. Uh, plants that grow up from the ground and he asked how, how does like a plant take dirt and then turn it into like a watermelon or a tree and, and i talked to him about that I, I, these roots they go into the ground and they take uh these nutrients that they're pulling water and other nutrients from the ground and they um they concentrate them and through i mean what i would call miraculous processes they turn it into fruit apples oranges uh, whatever. And what I'm wondering, Ron, is, uh, a lot of these animals that have, that have died, uh, plants and, and animals that this, uh, you know, their biology decomposes and it turns into oil. I wonder if from eating and, and stuff from the ground, if the, if those substances are just things that have been concentrated into life forms, in other words, in the earth's surface, uh, that the, the substance that, that makes oil is already in the ground. And that it's going, it's being pulled up by the roots of plants, or animals eat the plants. You know, you know the, how the how the chain goes. And, and when those animals die, those concentrated substances uh, that are already in the ground are located in these areas and sediment sedimentary rocks. So, in one sense, could both of them be right uh, in in the in their theories about oil? I mean, could both have a point that oil maybe comes from 
multiple different sources. And it's just more effective to go uh, search for them in sedimentary areas because that's where they're going to be more concentrated. So if you're going to spend $10 million to go through a rock, you don't want to get 80 barrels. You want to get a million barrels, you know, minimum to, to get your money back. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. And and so I, I no, that's, that's an interesting comment there. I, I think that when you look at this whole debate, it's the easiest position in the world is to say something happened and it took a hundred thousand years and it's, it's proof science. That's a very easy position to take because no one can disprove that. It's kind of like what you're saying a second ago. I can't disprove that the theory of oil um, as modern science articulates is wrong, but the flip side is they can't prove it's right. And to me, when we talk about this stuff, it's so it's so frustrating when you read some of these responses and how people act on the internet. I'm happy to have this discourse and to talk to people um, and, and to look at this stuff. But Josh, the reality is, um, if you're talking about something that takes hundreds of thousand years to prove, well, it's going to take us a couple hundred thousand years to figure out even if if that theory is right, you know we're we're, we're, yeah. we're not you know so so to so to so to walk around and say that we understand how oil got here um, definitively, and that's what you and you read this debate. That's that's what's so frustrating. Well, we know how it got here, and I'm like, you guys are scientists. I'm not a scientist. You're a scientist. That's not how the scientific method works. It doesn't go make a hypothesis, run a bunch of calculations, and go. Well, we don't really know how it gets to here, but this is it. No, the debate's the debate settled. So, um, so yeah, the abiotic debate. You know, to me, I'll, I'll just kind of I don't put a bow on with this. I'll put you like this. I don't think we're going to run out of oil um, before we move on to another resource. So my personal belief is that at some point, um, mainly. Nuclear would be my guess is we'll transition our large cities to nuclear power. When we do that, that will expand the life expectancy of oil. So if you're if you're one of those people think we're out of oil, you put all the big city oil and gas, you put all the people on um, the big metropolitan areas on nuclear power plants. You know they have long life expectancy; they're very durable, um, we'll, we'll, or something else. But nuclear seems the most logical option. We'll put the big cities on nuclear. It'll expand the life expectancy of. Um, oil and gas, and then they can be used for other stuff. And and, and so then all of a sudden you're going to look at it and go, okay, wow. And then you'll see solar come in. And solar will have its place in the market. It doesn't have a place. It has a small place now. It'll have a larger place. And so oil will become, it, its its ability to be used for longer will be there because other will eventually go, you know what? We should be using more nuclear power. We should be using more of this. We should be using more of this. And so as we, our society continues to grow and understand and how to think about proper energy policy, um, the life expectancy of oil will go. Could we potentially tomorrow, if we in, the, in a theoretical world, go out and drill all the oil dry? I, I, yeah, I, I suppose. But I just don't think if you actually look practically, all of the things, the simple things, the smartest people in the world who understand oil and gas, if you think they're if you think they're completely corrupt and evil, let's say let's say they are very smart, but they're corrupt and evil. If that's your position, they are they still understand what would happen if oil if we ran out of oil and gas tomorrow. They they do understand that, and so the the problem is the people who think that we're going to run out of oil and gas. Um, you know, it, it seems like they don't really understand the implication of that. It, it's not it's not really soaked in as well. So um, let's go on to the next question, Josh. I'm sure we could kind of, uh, and I hope that's very clear for the listeners. If we didn't make it clear, you got any questions, comments, let me know because it's very, to me, it's a frustrating thing. It's something we should talk about and we should be able to discuss. But when you read these people on both sides, not both sides, one side particularly, they're very dogmatic in their views. And I, I, I just don't understand it, Josh, because I look at the scientific method and I go, let's go, let's, let's, if we can agree to use this, we actually agree that you cannot prove that your theory on oil is right. I'm, I'm, I'm happy discussing it. I'm happy questioning it. I'm happy talking about it. I'm happy looking at it from a hundred different angles. I love that. But 
you can't at the end of the day say it's right because you've you've given the scientific method to do that. Yep, I agree. I agree. And uh, Ryan, uh, we've we spent quite a bit of time on that one, so we'll go ahead and jump into, like you said, go ahead and jump into the next question. We have one. Uh, this one was from. Uh, this one is. Uh, this question is from John Clements. We did a few of his questions uh, a month ago. And uh, the question is, with the lowering of the port depth in Corpus Christi coming, what are the plans for even further expansion to the port afterwards? Yeah, you know, I've talked to some people about this. I'm not I'm definitely not the the best person to answer this question, but I can tell you what I do know. The first thing is, um, and I talked about this on the live stream, we have to understand that this is an extremely important event for the oil and gas industry. Um, it's, It's so important that six CEOs of big companies, um, I'm trying to get the list up right here, sent a letter to President Trump just this week, actually, requesting that he make sure that this project gets funded and it gets done. Because they understand, if you're in the LNG business especially, um, they understand that you want to get this done. So let me see here. I've got the list. It's um, – it's, um, Okay, there it is. It's, Ox- it's Occidental Petroleum, New Star, Buckeye, Howard Energy Partners, Plains All-American, and Chenier. And they asked that the president include $60 million for this project in his fiscal year budget. Um, and so this will help. The, the primary thing that we're looking at here is the super tankers need to be able to get into the port. Okay, right now they can't get in there. So you make it deeper. I think they got to raise the bridge too, and then the, the tankers can get in. That's the biggest thing. And if you look at the projects that are coming down to Corpus Christi, the b- ability to get those tankers in there, I don't know. I'm sure we get Sean Strawbridge back on. He can tell us. I don't know how um, much that improves, improves the efficiency there. But you got things like this right now. They got to load. They got to. They can fill it so much. They send it out, and they send a ship out there to fill it the rest of the way. Um, you know, you're losing a lot of time there, and so you just can, can increase your efficiency. And so, if you're someone who wants to, um, you know, get your product out, you know, and get it out as quick as possible, then having that it improves your efficiency. Also, it also limits, I would imagine, the amount that you can ship down there just because you have to have more storage because it takes a little bit longer to get it out. So I think I think the biggest thing when we look at the Corpus Christi, Corpus Christi is America's wanting to export the product now. Uh, and it's important to note that one-fifth, one-fifth of all LNG contracts are on the market right now, and they will be done, I believe it's this year. It might be some next year, but I believe it's this year that one-fifth of all the global LNG contracts are up right now. So being able to get the tankers in and out um, wherever they're at in the U.S. is an important issue to secure those long-term contracts. And those contracts are like 20 years. They're not, it's like a six-month deal. Those are big-term, long-term contracts. Well, Ryan, last question. This one, again, is from John, um, and it's a little bit longer question, so I'm going to read it to you real quick. It is, uh, I was a previous investor in the energy market in my 401k. However, the sole fund that was energy-specific was removed a few years ago, and admittedly, after not having a very good rate of return for me, how big an impact is the energy market when it comes to the overall market? Are there just a fewer companies or has the trend been downward for a while, which might cause something like that? John Hancock, of course, gave me no explanation for the removal. Seems more and more funds might include energy companies, but not many are energy specific anymore. Uh, and he puts a little parenthesis. This question is limited by what my employer has available, which may not represent the market as a whole. So this could be an invalid question. Right. No, it's a good question. Um, first off, if you look at some of the top energy funds that are out there, you you you, you have a um, kind of a, a different a different um, um, 
range of what their returns are, as you would see with anything else. Um, first off, we, we've seen that energy funds have struggled mainly because oil prices have struggled. Okay, so you know the past couple of years, I don't know if you mentioned the question when this happened, but the past couple of years, you actually saw last year there was some clamoring saying, "Hey, these energy funds are undervalued. Go go buy one now because they." Once the market realizes that they're undervalued, they're going to correct, which means the price, the value will increase. Um, this year, I would expect the energy funds to go up, mainly because the price of oil is going to go up. So I, it, it would really depend on a couple things here. A, you know, what the fund was and what companies were associated with it. B, when the time period was. And then, um, you know, as he mentioned, it, it might have been the only one and there could have been some better performer ones or it could have called it a, a, just a bad time. But C, I would say this, that, that there was some clamoring, especially third, fourth quarter last year, that, uh, that the energy funds in general were undervalued by the market and they should have um, corrected themselves. We'll see how that actually plays out. But, you know, you, you always got to think when you look at the stock market, um, you know, Man, when you watch how people, you, I think you mentioned John Hancock there. If you go read some of these in, uh, analysts from Raymond James or um, Goldman Sachs or, or wherever the case may be, if you go read their analysis on what they think about companies, it's very interesting because, you know, a lot of times um, I, I've read some of their stuff and I'm not exactly sure where they get their conclusions from. It kind of goes back to that whole scientific method thing. Like they'll put stuff in there and you're like, man, I, I'm not sure. Or on the flip side, they'll, they'll overestimate. Uh, they'll, they'll, over, they'll, they'll either pump a company up or really devalue it. And I, I'll give you a good example. So when you deal with the stock market, think about this. Um, first off, if you're a trader, um, if you're a kind of a day trader or a swing trader, you want extreme volatility. Now that's a relative term. Extreme is relative to the to the trader, of course. But you want volatility because if it's going up and down, you can make money in those peaks and valleys. Okay. If this is kind of going, you know, this left to right, kind of sideways, um, okay, you can't make a lot of money there. But if it's going from the top, the bottom left to the top right, or the top right to the uh, the top left to the bottom right, if it's going like that, that diagonal pattern, um, you can make a lot of money. So volatility is what traders want. So they like volatility. What's a good example of that, Josh? Brexit. Go back in Brexit. Um, within overnight, the stock market just crashed. Okay, and then within two days, two days, um, it had rebounded to where it was. Why did that happen? Well, it happened because people who understand how to make a buck made a buck, right? And so they created all this instability in the marketplace. Mm. Now, when Brexit was announced, it was two years, two years before anything was going to happen. So. You mean to tell me that these really smart people who understand contracts, how deals work, how these bureaucracies work, were so scared that Brexit was going to end the world that they, 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 that they um, sold all their stock overnight? No, no. They're smart people. They understand the basics of, of, of how, e- how economics work. So what happened? Well, a lot of people, a lot of people panic naturally because people panic, but the smart people I'm not going to, this is, you know, personal opinion here only. Um, you know, maybe there, were, there was some influence. Hey, you might want to get out of these stocks. But if, so if you, so think about this, Josh, let's just say it's at a dollar. The stock market's at a dollar and it goes down to 75. So you, you had, you, you bought it at a dollar and then you bought it at 75 and then you bought it at 50 and then you bought it at 25 and then you bought it at 10 and then it starts going back up. So you bought it 10 again and then you bought it at 25 and you bought it 50 and you bought it at 75. When it gets back to a dollar, you have a lot of money in your pocket. 
Because you bought it all the way down and you bought it all the way up. I don't know if there's a study done on how many people did that, but I guarantee you it was a ton. So you have to understand when you when you when you look at the stock market, I don't care what kind of fund it is, what it is. Um, everyone looks at data differently. Everyone has a different interest in it. So John, he's wanting a nice return for retirement. Makes sense. But that doesn't mean that everyone is interested in what you're interested in. Um, and so there's other people who are in, that's why we have the funds, right? So for someone like me or you, Josh or John, you know, we can put our money into the fund. It performs well. It's got a lot of companies, a lot of things. It's supposed to protect us from the volatility. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that certain parts of the investment world are downgrading certain stocks or certain companies or certain industries because of how they view stuff. And that also doesn't mean that their evaluation is right. So I hope that answers the question. Um, I, I do think that they've, they've underperformed mainly because, um, a, there was some good reason for them to underperform. And then B, there's been a lag period where they've been probably more profitable, more valuable than they should be. Um, but the market hasn't caught up to that yet. So I hope that answers it, Josh. Yep, that's good, Ryan. Well, guys, uh, that finishes up for the questions of the month. Uh, again, if you have questions, we need some more in. We have a few uh, We have a few questions that came in. We got the guy from Australia, like we mentioned earlier. If you have any questions, send them in. Ryan at globalenergymedia.com. Uh, we need some. We need some more questions. We want to keep uh, keep this going for the remainder of the year. Ryan, we have the rig count uh, for today. This is from Drilling Info. The rig count was at a thousand and fifty-one. That was up uh, up a good deal from from last week and the week before. So rig counts are beginning to climb. Something to uh, something to be excited about. Ryan's anything else? I know you're going to be in Nape uh, this this Friday. Anything else we need to mention? Yeah, about before yeah. Real we... quick on the rig count, Josh. Uh, um, so on the live stream yesterday, I don't know if this is the same number. I don't know if it's updated. The rig count's updated daily, but I don't know if the drilling info updates it before we record or if it's yesterday's rig count. If it's yesterday's rig count, that's 43 rig count. That's a, a 43. Um, positive rig count increase since January 1. I like to look at the rig count more of a macro scale, monthly, quarterly, yearly. Um, we, we do it weekly because some people like that. Um, but but 43, we're plus 43 rigs since January 1, assuming this is from yesterday's numbers, give or take a, so give or take a rig by the time you hear this. So the rig counts are increasing. What's going to be interesting to watch is, Josh, is as the rig counts increase, how high do they actually get um, we know they're going to go up, and we know we're going to see a lot of um, oil come on the market, but we don't expect them to go up as high as they have historically because this whole increase in efficiency, longer laterals, things like that. And uh, I know Jesse from Australia has a question that he wants us to dive into. That will be uh, – I told you this time, Jesse, but Josh Josh, Josh cut you off. So <laughs> that will be on next uh, month's first product Q&A. Yeah. And so next week, yeah, Sorry, Mark LaCour will be on the show. Uh, co-hosting with me because Josh is on vacation to Fiji or China or I don't know, Istanbul. He's going somewhere. And then hopefully Josh will return um, the, the week of the, the 16th. And then, yeah, first Friday Q&A is March 2nd. A couple of things, Josh. So we, we had a great time at the pistol shoot last week. I know you were taking care of that new baby boy, but um, uh, myself and the folks at Old Country Media were there. And we've had several people, Josh, I've had several people email me and say, hey, we'd like for you to come to our event. So, Email me. We can give you the details of how that works out. We would be happy to give you those details if you want Josh and I to come to your event. Um, again, if you're at Nate, right at GoldbringerGB.com. And folks, please always reach out to me. I love to meet with the listeners. I've met with, a, I don't know how many now, um, had lunch with them or coffee or whatever. Try to make ourselves as accessible as we can. Obviously, if you're in 
Australia, you can fly me down. I'd be happy to come down and see you in Australia, but I'm not going to be in Australia anytime soon. But if you're in Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, Midland, Oklahoma City, somewhere like that, I'm in all those spots um, on some kind of a regular basis. So shoot me an email. I would love to sit down and grab a cup of coffee or lunch or uh, something like that with you. Uh, but besides that, Josh, it's good to have you back on the show. We will miss you next week. And then hopefully after that, we'll get you back on our regular scheduled programming. And we have hopefully... I know you know this, Josh, but we can't we can't release it yet. We hopefully have some big news about the show uh, for the month of March, and so we're really excited about that. Um, it's not finalized yet, so we can't we can't say anything. Um, but we're really excited about where that might go. And final plug for our sponsor, which is R and D Pipe Company. The um, great folks there at R and D Pipe Company. If you're in the OCTG business, give them a call. I, I really like them, and be sure to check them out on their website, OCTG.net. Give Ron and his folks there a call. It's a great family-owned business. Love the folks at uh, R and D Pipe Company, and we really appreciate them sponsoring the show. Without the sponsors, it makes it a little harder for me and Josh to do what we do. So, thank you to R and D Pipe Company for re-upping with us for the month of February. Josh, that's it. Unless I got any, unless you got anything else. Let's hop on out of here. That's it, man. Okay, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, and we will talk to you next week. And until then, keep climbing. Mm-hmm.